Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Dan Pink, a contributing editor at Wired and the author of Free Agent Nation, and most recently, A Whole New Mind. Dan, welcome to Econ Talk. Russ, it's great to be here. Dan, your recent book, A Whole New Mind, argues that the right side of our brains is going to play an increasingly important role in the modern workplace. What do you mean by that? What do you have in mind? Well, what, what I... <laughs> What I'm, what I'm talking about is, is really using the structure of our brain as a metaphor for understanding um, the contours of, of business and particularly the contours of labor markets today. And, and what I mean is, is, that, is this. Uh, our brains uh, have two sides, left hemisphere and right hemisphere. There's been a lot of really stupid stuff written about the right side of the brain and so forth over the years. But in the last several years, um, the science has in some ways caught up to the popularization. And what we now know is that our brains are very elegant, very efficient, and they've done this miraculous job of dividing up tasks. Left side specializes in tasks that are logical, linear, sequential, analytical. Right hemisphere specializes in tasks that are uh, more about processing things simultaneously, more about understanding context rather than text, more about synthesis rather than analysis. And I think that metaphor uh, explains a lot. And, and my argument is, is that the sorts of abilities that used to get people ahead in work were often characteristic of the left hemisphere, the logical, linear, sequential, analytical, spreadsheet, SAT kind of abilities. And today, those abilities are absolutely necessary. And that's, I think, actually really important to underscore. Those abilities are absolutely necessary, but they're not sufficient. And the abilities that now matter most are abilities that are characteristic of the right hemisphere. Artistry, empathy, inventiveness, big picture thinking. Those, in a whole host of interesting ways, are increasingly the abilities that are determining who uh, moves forward and who falls behind. So you're stressing necessary uh but not sufficient. So it's useful and important in the workplace to have the left side of the brain be uh, productive. Yeah, I, would, I, would, I, would, I would even go further. I would say it's essential. Uh, if you're going to do particularly well in America in 2007. But you if, need those left brain abilities. But, but you if argue you just that, have those left brain abilities, you're not going to make it. Now, why is that? What's the argument there? Well, the argument is um, three forces, I think, are, are tilting the scales, and they're the three A's. And, you know, because I'm not um, an economist or a tenured professor, I have to alliterate. So they are... Well, and three, the, is, and three is a good number as well, right? Well, three, I'm a seven, you got three, seven, or ten. I believe everything comes in threes. Um, so, see, <laughs> the forces are abundance, Asia, and automation. And in brief, what I mean by that is this. On abundance, I mean the really staggering levels of material well-being uh, deep into the middle class in the advanced economies, not only the United States, but Canada and Australia and Japan and Western Europe. Um, and this is remarkable. This is, I think, one of the unheralded uh, stories of our time, is just how incredibly well-off in material terms uh, regular middle-class people are. In some ways, the material well-being of the typical, uh, let's say, the median family in America would in some fashion be unrecognizable to my grandparents. Um, if my grandparents were to see the median family in, say, the Washington metropolitan area or you know, anywhere in, in, in the U.S., um, if we were, if, let's, say, let's say we were to put my grandparents when they were my age in their 40s, transport them through time to 2007 and take them to the median family in you know, Prince George's County, Maryland, um, they would think they're in the home of some of the richest people ever. Um, uh, you know, they have cars, they've got, um, they've been on, they go on vacations, they own their own home, um, they have an array of electronics, their kids probably have a chance to go to college. Uh, and I think what this abundance has done is um, shaped business in two ways. First, um, it's put a premium on the aesthetic, emotional, even kind of sp sometimes even spiritual offering of goods and services and experiences in the marketplace. 
That is, people's needs for functionality and utility have been satisfied and oversatisfied. So the way that companies are trying to stand out in a crowded marketplace is through uh, aesthetics through look and feel through some of these more right brain attributes. This is why we have designer toilet brushes. This is why we have designer hearing aids. This is why we have why why cell phones in some fashion have moved from a technological device to device to an aesthetic device. So that's one way that uh, abundance is tilting the scales. The other way is that all of this abundance hasn't actually done a lot to boost subjective well-being. Uh, people have gotten richer, but not altogether that much happier, more satisfied. If you look at polling data, or particularly something called the World Value Survey out of the University of Michigan, and what what that has done is, I think, in some ways, uh, democratize the search for meaning. Uh, um, that is, people have been liberated by prosperity, not fulfilled by it, and so they're using their extra time and treasure to do things that are meaningful, whether it's yoga or meditation or finding work that's meaningful. Um, and I think this is also one of the great unheralded stories of our time. Uh, and, you know, Robert William Fogel of uh, Chicago, Nobelist, has written about what he calls the fourth great awakening. And I think he's really on about how prosperity has extended that search for meaning to a broader swath of the population than ever before. So anyway, at the risk of going on too long, that's how abundance tilts the scales to the right brain. And we had put the premium had... on, on the aesthetic, emotional uh, aspects of goods and services, and then it um, democratizes the search for meaning. And we had Greg Easterbrook on for a podcast a while back on a, on this, uh, the abundance part of that. Um, yes, exactly. Well, and no, you I refer think to Greg's quote, work. Yeah, you do. Right. No, I quote his, I quote his, I quote his book in my book yeah. uh, because I think he's spot on about a lot of that stuff. I don't necessarily agree with him on a lot of his um, policy solutions, but um, I think the analysis is is absolutely spot on, and I and and it's one of those it's one of these points that just doesn't get too recognized in mainstream, uh, especially media culture. Just how well off things are, people are today materially, but also um, the fact that this increasing economic prosperity hasn't necessarily translated into corresponding amounts of subjective well-being. But I like the point um, as well that that the premium it puts on style and aesthetic and um, self-expression, the use of customization to try to remove the commodity aspect of some of the improvements. And I think that's, that's a, it's a good insight. Well, you know, I think it's, and I think it's actually a, just a, a fact, a, 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 a scary fact of life. If you go out and talk to people who are running businesses, who are you know, coming up with new products and services, I mean, you get a sense that everyone is standing, teetering on the hmm. abyss of commodity hell. Um, that's what happens in a world of abundance. And, and the way to avoid toppling into that abyss, to pull back from the precipice of your part on the you know, purplish metaphor, is um, to decommoditize through these more right-brain things, through the backstory of a product or a service, through design, uh, through the emotional aspect of it, through outstanding customer service, or, of course, obviously, through dramatic leaps in utility. Not incremental leaps, Correct. but dramatic leaps in functionality, which is an act of invention, not an act of you know, um, engineering tinkering. Yeah, we're, um, we're taping this in early June. I'm not sure when it'll air, but uh, at the end of this month, the iPhone is scheduled to come out. And it purports to be certainly an aesthetic leap forward. Whether it is a functional leap forward remains to be seen. But if it's both, obviously, it'll be an enormous home run. Uh, if it's, quote, only aesthetic, I think it'll still be very successful. But it will have to, it will have to function well. That is the, that oh, is no, the minimum standard. Oh, no, functionality gets you to the table. It, it, it mm. is basically making a, a, a serious promise to customers and that it is this dramatic leap in both aesthetics and functionality. Um, but even if you look at cell phones, it's, it's just really quite remarkable. I mean, I was in uh, Japan last month, and it's so uh, last two months, and it's so clear to me. If you go to a place like Japan, which is a little bit ahead of us on mobile phones, that mobile phones have become essentially uh, an accessory. Um, it has become, in some ways, a component of fashion. You look at a mobile phone counter display in an electronics store in Japan, and it looks, and I should show you, I have these photographs. I, should, I mean, it's too, bad, it's, it's too bad there isn't a video part of this podcast. Put the pictures up like on the web. Counter. Uh-huh. It, it, you take a photograph of a cosmetics counter and a photograph of a cell phone counter, and they look the same. 
um, because these, these cell phones have become essentially aesthetic devices. Well, I think that's there are all, all of these cell phone customizers in Japan who put um, uh, decorations and, and rhinestones and all kinds of customized things on people's phones. There's a huge market in cell phone charms as people customize it with Hello Kitty or Blackjack or you know manga characters. Um, so it's just you know it's it's it, it has become in some ways a technological device that doubles as a fashion accessory, as a kind of jewelry, as a means of self-expression. It's just really quite remarkable. And I think I mean I'm you know and I, and I want one of those iPhones too because I hate my cell phone. Yeah. Um, but you know again you you give me a cell phone that works and it could be ugly and and I might still use it. But eventually we're going to get to the point where cell phones more or less work reasonably well, and people are going to end up wanting to differentiate based on some of these more aesthetic, emotional things. Well, c- competition among cell phone, cell phone suppliers is going to ensure that you don't have to have a, an ugly one. Uh, the, the interesting point about Japanese culture, I've, I have a feeling uh, that among uh, younger uh, cell phone users here in the United States, that fashion part is, is very much alive and well. Uh, that's oh, my sure. guess. And I think that it's – right, and I think that it is – I think that it is um, – and I think that it's accelerating. And you see it, again, you see it, and if you think about just the swiftness with which something, something like that has gone from essentially a technological device to an aesthetic device, we're, we're talking, you know, 10 or 12 years. Sure. And it, it is I mean, 20, 10 or 12 years ago, everybody did not carry, 12 years ago, everybody did not carry around a cell phone. Sure. Today, they do, and today, the cell phones they carry around generally look fairly cool and, and again, become much more, uh, much more, Customize, well, let alone being let alone being a tool themselves for self-expression by taking a photograph on your cell phone and posting it immediately onto your blog. Yeah, it's a wild another, thing. Yeah, well, well, I have a picture of a. I think it was taken around nineteen. I'd say it was around nineteen ninety six, late late nineties, of a friend of mine walking down the street talking on his cell phone. It, it looks like a scene out of a World War Two movie. The, the cell phone. <laughs> Is the closest thing you'd compare it to would be a walkie-talkie from World War II, one of those big, clunky, boxy <laughs> things. It is it would be unrecognizable to my children. My children, yeah. who are fourteen and, and under, would look at that and go, "What? What is he holding up to his ear?" It, you yeah. know, th- their first guess might be it's a microwave oven. I, you know, I, <laughs> they've just they, it certainly bears no resemblance to a cell phone of, of the of the present. Okay, so that's so that's abundance, which emphasizes, right. which leads to. Uh, and abundance is important. And abundance, as, I, as I've said a couple of times, I mean, abundance does not get the airtime it deserves. Well, we're trying to remedy that here at Econ Talk yeah. and at, at my blog, Cafe Hayek. But yeah, go ahead. So that's abundance. What, talk- and then we also have Asia and automation. And, and here what I mean is, with, by Asia, I mean essentially offshoring to places like India and Malaysia and the Philippines. And essentially what that has done is, and this, this idea of commoditization is really important. Essentially what, what has happened is, is, is that certain kinds of white-collar work has become commoditized. Um, today, certain kinds, any work that is routine, and that's really the devil word here, any work that's routine where you can write down the steps and it has a right answer, where you can reduce it to a recipe or to a formula or to you know, a series of instructions, um, that, kind of work is a, that kind of work is just racing to wherever it can get done the cheapest. Uh, and that's certain kinds of white-collar work that our moms and dads told us to do. I mean, it's certain kinds of accounting. It's certain kinds of financial analysis. It's certain kinds of, of law, even. And so if work is routine, um, it's a commodity. It, it, it is racing to places like India for now, um, but also, you know, eventually to places like Philippines, the Philippines and Malaysia and some of the other Asian countries, to some extent even Eastern European countries. Um, and to me, it's just a matter of... It's just a matter of uh, of simple math. I mean, if you think about it, if 15%, the numbers that I like to stack up are, are these three. Uh, if 15% of India's population, 1-5% of India's population hits the middle class or hits sort of the upper middle class, um, you know, talented, well-educated, able to compete in global labor markets, uh, that's 150 million people. That's more than the population of Japan world's second largest economy. It's more than, than the workforce in the U.S. That's 146 million people. Um, and that's if 85% of India gets left behind. Then you have the fact that in a couple of years, India will be the largest English-speaking country in the world, and the fact that the cost of communication between North America and India is essentially zero. 
so you know you add that all up, and it's clear that routine white collar work is just is race is eventually going to race completely out of this country, um, and places like you know England and 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 the UK, uh, England and um, Canada and Australia and Japan, um, and just go to the cheapest cost provider. And what that means is that uh, increasingly, um, just as we had to make the migration from blue-collar work to white-collar work. We have to make the migration in this country from traditional routine white-collar work to much more creative, conceptual, empathic work, because that routine work is going to get done cheaper elsewhere. The other is force, it, as you mentioned, is automation. Let, Dan, here it's, Dan let's, let's, stop, let's stick with Asia for a minute, if we could. Yeah. Um, are you worried about that? No. Why not? I mean, should uh, I be? Well, I, I'm asking you. <laughs> no, you're, no, no, hey, you're the guest. Hey, buddy, watch yourself. Uh, Don't. No, I am not worried about. I am not worried about that because it's. Uh, I mean, for a whole for a whole host. I, 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 what I'm what I'm worried about are two things. If I'm worried about anything at all, I'm worried about two things. First, I'm worried about the uh, backlash that would stop it from happening, and I'm worried about being too cavalier about it and leaving people behind. But in general, this is, this is how economies work. That is, um, if work can get done just as well, cheaper somewhere else, that's a good thing for everybody. It has dislocation effects in the short term, and the people who are dislocated and, and disadvantaged by that you know, need to have something, some, some, something in the form of assistance. But in general, I think it's a good thing. I mean, I think it's a good thing in the same way that routine blue-collar work doesn't get done in this country anymore. Um, that liberated people to do other things, more interesting things, more creative things, more you know, white-collar work, less back-breaking work. So you don't think it threatens um, our standard of living? <laughs> I know it's a rhetorical uh, question. Well, it doesn't, no, it actually. I mean, again, I know that. I mean, it enhances our standard of living. I, I, I quite agree. I know. I know you. I know that you agree. But I mean, it's that's why. I'm, that's why I'm laughing. I mean, it I enhances know. our standard of living. Which is, uh, and it, and you know, um, and this is this is how economies grow. This is how nations prosper um, through that. I mean, this is you know, there's a there's a book called The Choice that tells a story in a lovely form. Yeah. About. The the compare you know about the importance of comparative advantage and and it's the same thing with white collar work as it is with blue collar work. Uh, you know, uh, um, and it's going to have some dislocation and 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 I think that we haven't reckoned with that yet. I think we haven't said how do we build an education system that allows people to flourish in this kind of world. How do we have the health? Uh, insurance and pension systems that allow people to 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 have a you know some sense of security in this kind of world. So there are questions that it raises, but it's actually you know you know it it, it enhances everybody's standard of living. The more this happens, the more that routine work gets done for for less amount of money elsewhere. That frees up. Um, that, that lowers the cost of goods and services, obviously, and it also frees up people to do uh, more creative, uh, interesting work. And, you know, this is something, uh, sort of a lesson that I think societies and economies constantly have to relearn. There's, a, there's um, uh, in the book by uh, one of uh, Frank Levy um, and somebody else, and I'm forgetting the name, have a book uh, that came out about three years ago, just after my book came out, maybe two years ago, just after my book came out, um, about the role of automation in labor markets. And forgive me, I cannot we'll think find of the name it. of the we'll book. We'll find it and put a link up to it. Yeah, Don't yeah worry about it's it. a very interesting book. And what it does, it tells a story at the beginning of this Blue Ribbon Commission that President Johnson um, convened. Uh, in the mid-1960s, the smartest labor economist in America, to look out into the far-off year 2000 and say, what's the job situation going to be like then? And these, you know, again, these smart people, the smartest economists in the country at that time, came back with this alarming report that said that by 2000, we're going to have massive unemployment. We're going to have widespread unemployment because these computers are going to be able to do all these jobs, and there's going to be nothing left for people to do. Yeah. And of course, it's just flatly wrong because it underestimates ingenuity. It underestimates the um, the the um, uh, the dynamism in in economy. Well, it, it underestimates the capacity to for people to come up with new things to do, new ways to earn a living. And I, I I've seen this myself in in sort of a more slightly more kind of comical and personal way. I rem- I, mean, I grew up in Ohio. Um, you know, at the time that the Rust Belt was rusting, and in the air is this notion that we're moving from an at, from a industrial economy to a service economy, and every you know everyone has to make the transition. And to a lot of people, that seemed like utter BS. 
including to my father, who I remember saying, my father's a smart guy, and he ended up saying, this is nonsense. Economies are about making things. They're not about services. We can't have an economy where everyone just runs around giving each other haircuts. That'll never work. And he didn't see search engine optimizers. He didn't see web designers. He didn't see massage therapists. He didn't see Starbucks. He didn't see designer toilet brushes. He didn't see mobile phones. No one did. And so this perspective that, this, that these kinds of transitions where people can do routine work cheaper is a threat is just wrong because what it does is it, it unleashes creative capacity to enhance standard of living um, and do even better. Yeah, it it shows a remarkable lack of imagination for me when economists say that so many jobs are going to disappear. We, it, it's um, the part that's also forgotten that you're referring to is the fact that if we can do something much much cheaper than we're doing it now, we're going to be better off, and they're going to be right. new th- new things are going to be possible that we can't dream of, can't imagine. You told the story a few minutes ago about your grandparents showing up in. Uh, in middle-class America, what, what it would be like for them. You know, half of the things that they'd see, they wouldn't know what they were. We're you know, joking sure. about my kids not knowing what a cell phone was of 1996. Certainly our grandparents wouldn't recognize any kind of cell phone, wouldn't recognize an iPod, wouldn't recognize the, uh, the heart monitor, wouldn't recognize the antibiotics in the cabinet. It's just exactly. the, the list goes on and on. And none of those things were imagined in 1930. Well, some of them were, but most of them weren't. And to say that somehow we're going to run out of stuff to do, run out of stuff yeah. to be productive, when the ultimate resource is our brains. What I like about your book, and let's get back to it now, what I like about your book is it, it imagines, it may not be accurate, but it imagines a set of paths. Well, it would be remarkable if it were accurate. It may be somewhat accurate. It would be a tremendous achievement. It, it imagines possible paths for how we can continue to use our brains in creative and innovative ways when some of the things that we're doing now aren't going to be as valued as they are uh, today. So uh, keep going. We, so we have, we have outsourcing, which is going to take uh, – you call it Asia, but it's, it's outsourcing to lower-cost providers that are yeah, going to – outsourcing starts with O, and I need to Exactly. Yeah. AOA is, could have been good too, though. But anyway, so it, uh, this force of Asian lower, lower costs is going to mean that a lot of things that we're doing now aren't going to be uh, as valued – and as and as uh, productive as they are for Americans, so this could be this is accounting, some types of accounting, some types of software design, some forms of medicine. Even with we've got, I know we have stuff being uh, X-rays that are being read overseas because it's cheaper to do it that way. So all sure, kinds of uh-huh. things that used to be very lucrative in the United States aren't going to be lucrative anymore. But now there's going to be a whole bunch of stuff that's that's really cheap, which we're going to have all this other opportunity to do stuff with. Plus, some of the things that get done overseas can't be done here. For for all, all kinds of reasons that that you talk about in the book, but so carry on. Uh, so so that's uh, so that's um, so that's Asia, and then the third A is is automation. Um, and again, I mean, in some ways, as as, as this conversation is is um, is alluding to, you know, we've seen this movie before too. And, and essentially, what what I'm talking about here is that is that last century. Look at it, you have to look at it metaphorically. Um, last century, you had machines that replaced uh, human backs, human muscles. That is, um, machines can do certain kinds of physical work better than human beings can. Take a forklift or, or you know, certain kinds of machine tools and so forth. Well, this century, what's happening is that software uh, is replacing our brain. But again, for now at least, software has a very difficult time replacing the artistic, empathic, inventive right brain side the right right side of the brain, it, 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 but it ends up being very, very good at the routine, rule-based, sequential left side uh, work. And this is why you see lawyers, certain kinds of legal work that you can go online to do, you know, for literally a tenth of the cost, things like online divorces. Uh, it's where you can get a piece of $14 software to ask you a series of questions about your will and you still might go to a lawyer, but you go for one hour rather than ten hours. Uh, it's um, you see a little bit of it, the early stages of it, in medical diagnosis because medical diagnosis is about following decision trees, um, and software does that very well. Um, and you know you also see it in, in accounting. Think about personal accounting. Um, you, um, uh, 
you've got, you know, it's sort of, again, another example of this misplaced emphasis. Last year, actually, these are 2000 and, uh, 2005 tax year, the, there were about a million U.S. tax returns done in India, and people went nuts about that. I mean, Lou Dobbs, you know, went at the coronary arrest every night about that. Um, you know, this is terrible for accounting jobs. Indian chartered accountants make 500, 600 bucks a month. There's no way we can compete with that, blah, 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 blah. Meantime, no one says a word about TurboTax. You have 21 million Americans who did their taxes on TurboTax, a $39 piece of software. Great point. Rather than go to an accountant, because it's routine work that could get done cheaper. And so the bottom line here is that I think to make it today, the sorts of left-brain, white-collar, information-age abilities just don't cut it. You have to be able to do work that's hard to outsource, hard to automate, and that delivers on a lot of these non-material values. And that ends up being, again, less of these routine left-brain, white-collar tasks and more of a set of abilities and capacities that we often haven't taken seriously enough in this country. Artistry, empathy, design, storytelling, contextual thinking, boundary-crossing thinking, um, to some extent even playfulness, those kinds of abilities are now the ones that are, are really providing an economic edge. You're listening to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty, and I'm talking with Dan Pink, author of A Whole New Mind. Dan, you suggest that there are six senses that we should try to enhance if we want to compete in this new world uh, of Asia automation and abundance. Tell me what the six are, and uh, then let's uh, let's talk about a few of them. Well, these are these are abilities that are hard, not impossible to outsource. Um, you know, hard, not impossible to automate, uh, and that end up delivering on some of these, um, you know, non-material values that are highly prized in an abundant age. So, um, and they are uh, uh, design. Um, I'll just list them all. Design, story, symphony, which is the ability to see the big picture, combine disparate things into something new, Um, empathy, uh, play, and meaning. And I think that if you look at businesses today that are working well, and if you look at individuals who are flourishing in their career, uh, they tend to really be masters of these sorts of abilities, that these kinds of abilities, these hard-to-outsource, hard-to-automate abilities, are the ones that are giving people uh, and and organizations a real edge today. Well, let's take the first one, um, which is design. We've talked about that already, how some of the products that are – would otherwise be commodities are being enhanced with aesthetic features. One of the things I found interesting in the book is the explosion of design schools, uh, are not just in the United States, but around the world. Talk about that. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's really an interesting phenomenon. It's, I think, again, it's another really interesting hidden story about the rise of these art and design colleges as an economic force. I mean, if you look at where corporate recruiters are going, they're heading to places like the Rhode Island School of Design. They're heading to places like the Art Center College of Design. Um, you have, you know, General Motors recruiting there and Procter & Gamble recruiting there and some of these big schools. Uh, Electronic Arts, the game company, recruited last year 22 members of 22 people from the senior class at the Rhode Island uh, School of Art and Design. And I'm um, the Rhode Island, the Ringling School of Art and Design in Sarasota, Florida, one of the top design schools in the country. Um, you know, and this is at a class, they probably have 200-something people in the class. Electronic Arts came in and, re- and hired 22 of them because they had those kinds of abilities that are hard to outsource and, and hard to automate. And this is why I've endeared myself to business schools by, by declaring that the MFA is the new MBA. Yeah, the MFA is the uh, Masters of Fine Arts, right? Masters of Fine Art. Uh, that ensures that I'll never get invited to a business school. Well, they're worse fates. Uh, but the the <laughs> MF the the MFA is uh, is surprisingly uh, successful right now. At least that's your claim. Is is there any salary data to back that up? Other than the anecdotal stories that that they're being pursued by folks that are not normally who you'd associate with design. There's, you know, what I couldn't find much in the way of salary data, but if you look at actually, if you look at some of the data on employment categories, you notice a an uptick, more than an uptick. You notice a, a serious increase in jobs for uh, art, entertainment, and design. That's the category that they use um, to the point where that ca- that there are more people working in those industries than there are working as uh, accountants and auditors and whatever that sort of accounting category is. 
Um, so I haven't seen it yet in the, in, the, in the salary data. That's a little bit harder to come by. But in the job category data, you actually see substantial growth in that area and modest growth in some of the more traditional white-collar areas. And it's not just in the United States, right? It's happening worldwide. Well, I mean, it's more in the United States because the United States actually has a, you know, one of the great virtues of the United States is that it, it, it has a much more kind of flexible higher education system. And so you have... Um, um, you know, a, a better developed infrastructure of art and design colleges here than anywhere in the world. Now, that said, there's no way that the United States has a permanent lock on art and design talent or capacity, not even close. And so, you know, you do have art and design colleges sprout, uh, sprouting in, uh, actually, Korea is an interesting example, but also in um, India and in China, to some extent, um, to some extent in Japan. I think one of the more interesting things going on is, is, is how much, say, traditional business schools are reaching across the aisle and trying to team up with these art and design colleges so that they're doing, for instance, uh, IIT uh, in Chicago has a new program that's a combined business and design degree. Uh, you have places like um, ANSIAD, the French Business School, doing joint projects with the Art Center College of Design. You've got MIT and Harvard calling up the president of RISD trying to do joint projects. So you have a lot of this collaboration, this very whole-minded business plus design collaboration that's going on right now. Well, I business think... schools are recognizing that a lot of what they're teaching their kids um, are commodity skills. We like to think of them as young adults, Dan, but uh, <laughs> you called them... And then you also have uh, <laughs> Jeff Pfeffer at Stanford and others who are doing research saying that the MBA actually doesn't confer much in the way of additional uh, earning effect. That basically it's two years of opportunity cost and some loans, and you don't really get it back. Yeah, I'd... and this is from a guy, you know, tenured professor, obviously at um, at Stanford Business School. So you see business schools trying to reinvent their curriculum now. So, for instance, Yale Business School has 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 done a radical revamp of its curriculum. Well, I, what what's funny about it to me is uh, there are a lot of fads in business school uh, curriculums, curricula, sure. and it, when you first raise the possibility that a business school would partner with design school, uh, your, my first thought is, yeah, well, sure, because every business needs a logo. And, and you know, you ah. want right? Right? You want to, you got to have some, some visual stuff. But what I think is profound here is that it's so much more than that. You're talking about the way the product is designed, the way it's marketed, that it should be done in an aesthetic manner. And it points really to the lessons of the book, which is that, It'd be good for a person in business to have some aesthetic taste, not just right. Well, it, it, <laughs> and it's also it also in some ways goes even beyond aesthetics, in that designers think in a certain way. I mean, designers are problem solvers, and they think in a way that 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 solves problems in ways that combine utility and significance. And they also are willing to see what's not there. They're willing to try to come up with something that the world didn't know it was missing. Uh, and design ends up being this very whole-minded skill that it isn't simply. It isn't pure aesthetics. It isn't fine arts. It's a combination of that sort of soft-hearted aesthetic ability and a hard-headed, in some ways, an engineering sensibility. And another good business school example of this in North America is the Rotman School in Toronto, where the dean, Roger Martin, um, is saying, I mean, his words, not mine, business people today have to be designers. This is the head of a business school, and, and you know, he has a program trying to revamp his curriculum around what's called integrative thinking, which is kind of combining this left-brain approach and this right-brain approach. And that goes back to something, Russ, that I said earlier about how, you know, when I talk about the premium on these right-brain abilities, I don't mean that these left-brain abilities have no value at all. I mean, anytime I go to an art and design college, I, you know, I, I, I say to these young men and women, do not run screaming from the room when the professor puts a number on the board. You have to be numerate. You're not going to be an effective designer. You're not going to be an effective, you know, aesthetic worker uh, if you're not numerate. You know, we we talked earlier about the iPhone, which is a, a, a Apple is a clear example of a firm that's used aesthetics and design as a way of of enhancing its engineering uh, capability and how they're married if if it's done well. You know, you have. Uh, the iPod is, is the supreme example. Their earlier attempt, the Newton, for a palm-based device was not so successful for, for a variety of reasons. Because it didn't work. I think, I think one – yeah. Uh, but I think one I mean, of the – it, it it, that's, that's a great example. I hadn't even thought of that. I mean, it, in some ways, it got the, 
aesthetics and significance right, but it didn't have the utility. Right. The Palm was really the 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 next uh, six, the first really successful one. Yeah. Um, because it worked. And it was. I mean, aesthetics. I remember Dunesbury used to do you know did like a, like three months of, of cartoons about how bad the handwriting recognition system was on the Newton. Yeah. And and then on the flip side, you've got the uh, the ability on the new iPhone, at least in theory, to use your finger to flick through your album collection mm. visually. And when I see that, I think that looks fun. Uh, you know, I, it's does it's not use that useful. It's probably just as good to scroll down a, a list of type, but it looks fun visually. But I, I want to raise a, a question. We'll, we'll get. Well, I want to move on, but I wanted I want to ask a question uh, along the way. You talk about the um, the Rotman School. Is that the name in Toronto? Yes, Rotman R O T M A N. That's trying to integrate, take a more integrative approach. Uh, right. One of the challenges of that. And this is a challenge, I think, for for everybody who is uh, inspired by your book. Uh, and there are a lot of inspiring things in the book. There are a lot of practical pieces of advice on how to enhance your skill set in in these different areas, which I think is a, a really nice feature. But one of the challenges is some of these things, although they're impo- they are important, and I agree with you that they're important, they're very hard to teach some of them. So we'll get as we go along. Uh, to some of the others, I'll, I'll mention some of my skepticism about the – or at least some of the challenges that people are going to face trying to do these more enhanced marriage of the left and the right brain. But um, the the design thing is clearly important. Let's move to story. What do you mean by story? Well, what, what, by story, I mean let, – let's, let's take a step back and talk about why it's necessary in business. It's necessary in business because um, facts uh, have less value. I mean it used to be that there was – a premium and advantage attached to being able to find a fact, but now, you know, anybody essentially can find with act with internet access can find a fact that they need in in ten seconds, and and what that means is that what matters more than facts themselves are putting facts in context and delivering them with emotional impact, and that's what a story does. So you now see story, which we often kind of ghettoize as something not serious, uh, even deceitful. Uh, you now see story moving into a lot of realms of business, whether it's leadership or whether it's knowledge management, and certainly into, I think, very profoundly into uh, differentiation in a crowded marketplace. Yeah, I think it's a an incredibly uh, important trend that that's you're you're one of the first to notice. I, I noticed it when I noticed how many commercials uh, tell stories rather than sell product. Sometimes the the products just totally in the background. It's just a, a clever, entertaining story to try to grab your attention, move you, uh, get you to remember it. And of course, uh, I write novels trying to teach economics because I think they're more interesting and more memorable. I think it's a crucial part of learning is via storytelling and, and hearing stories. Absolutely. It's a crucial part of being a human being. I mean, I think that's one of the things that has been lost in the banishment in many ways of story from the business realm. I mean, this is how human beings communicate. I mean, when you come home from a long day and your spouse says, you know, how was your day? You don't whip out a PowerPoint presentation, you know, with 13 bullets and a pie chart. I mean, you narrate. You say, oh, my God, first this happened and that happened. Um, this is how human beings human beings are wired. I mean, I mean, literally in their brains um, to see the world as a series of episodes, not necessarily as a series of logical propositions. And so, I think that this that that bringing story back into business is actually more in sync with how human beings actually um, how human beings actually operate, and that's why it's more effective. And and while we're doing this uh, over the over the airwaves as a radio like uh, experience. Visual storytelling, I think, is increasingly important for all kinds of reasons. I just – in my last issue of Wired, uh, it came with a uh, DVD uh, called Eureka, and it was an ad. It was a commercial. Uh-huh. It wasn't a full-page ad in the magazine. It was a DVD, and the DVD I – po- I didn't know what it was. I popped it – I usually throw them out, uh, but, yeah. but I happened to pop it into my uh, DVD player, and it was an ad for Shell – uh, Shell Oil, and it was about Shell's challenges in trying to find new sources of, of petroleum, crude oil, uh, dealing with the economics and the environment. But instead of making it, as you say, like a PowerPoint presentation, it was filmed as a serious Hollywood-style movie 
It was ten. Mm-hmm. It was ten minutes long. It must have cost, I assume, million a million plus, maybe two, three million dollars mm-hmm. to to film it with this level of of uh, cinematic quality. And there was a, and it was a story. It wasn't just a high quality visual ad. And here we are talking about it, which I guess was right. Part, that's was, what I was going to say. That's part of the goal, but it was much more than that. Much more than the novelty of it. It tried to pluck at your heartstrings in a left brain and right brain way. It tried to make it clear, and say that very well. But it tried to make it clear that it's hard to find oil and it's expensive. That's the the left brain uh, part. But the right brain part was that the guy looking for the oil is a decent human being. He's a good guy. He's not a monster. He's got troubles with his kid. They're struggling. <laughs> And and actually, they use the kid's conversation with the dad is kind of ashamed. The kid's kind of ashamed. The dad's, uh, you know, an environmental monster, and the dad that get, lets the dad say, "Yeah, well, you like your product, the things in your life that are used oil, don't you?" Oh yeah, I guess so. So so it's 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 a piece of propaganda. It's a piece of propaganda, but it's packaged in a way uh, to make it more compelling and and more memorable. Uh, yeah, and and um, and I think their point about visual storytelling is actually quite important. I mean, as you know, I mean, I've spent the last two months in Japan, and what I, what was I studying? I was studying um, uh, manga, which is uh, Japanese comics, which are an incredibly popular, incredibly persuasive, incredibly valuable form of visual storytelling that's at the heart of Japanese pop culture, uh, and that is. Uh, increasingly spreading all over the world because it combines both text and image because it's very whole-minded uh, and because it can be a more uh, compelling uh, form of presentation. That's a cool thing. Any, anything else you want to say about about story? Um, no. <laughs> well, I'm going to add one thing. I, I think communication just by itself is undervalued. I find it remarkable that students brag to me uh, over the years, how uh, you know they took this course or that because quote you don't have to write a paper. Uh, when I used to teach in a business school, a lot of the business school students uh, would would tell me that was one of the best things about being a business major is that you don't have to write any papers. And I thought, boy, what an error of judgment. So if there are any young listeners out there listening, uh, Dan Pink. Uh, Author of Free Agent Nation, along with the book we're talking about, A Whole New Mind. Dan, you're a free agent. You've severed the bonds of, quote, normal or real employment, as you sometimes call it. But the reason you were able to do that is because you're smart, obviously. You can think of some interesting things to say, but you say them well. And saying things well is an incredibly valued uh, skill that is, I think, often forgotten. Yeah, I also, also, I mean, actually, one reason I was able to go out on my own is that uh, is that my wife had a job and she had health insurance. That helped. Hey, hey. Um, <laughs> but, but you know, I also think saying something is important, and I think that in 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 a lot of business, a lot of business is not so much that it's. I don't I don't put a huge amount of credence in this idea that there's kind of substance and style in communication. I think the two are inextricably linked, and I think one of the reasons that 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 certain kinds of business communication sounds like nonsense is not because of inartful presentation or execution, but because people aren't saying anything. Yeah, that, that, uh, that's a problem. <laughs> that, yeah. That is I a think problem. That's really, I think that's really at the, I think that's, I think that's really at the, um, uh, um, at the core of it. And, and I think one reason for that, though, in, the, in people's defense is that there's this kind of false sense of, there's a, there's a kind of false sense of what it is to sound like a business person, that there are certain ways that you talk to be taken seriously, and they tend to be completely uh, room-emptying kinds of ways that, that, sort of, that people think signify seriousness, but in fact signify that you don't know what the hell you're talking about. Uh, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. In, in my area, in, in academic life, you know, I always like it when someone said, says about a professor, well, you know, he really knows his stuff, but he just can't, and I'm thinking maybe he doesn't really know his stuff. Uh, sometimes, exactly. <laughs> a lot of times, bad, there's a certain mystique about a bad communicator. He must be a genius. Maybe he's just yes. <laughs> doesn't know what he's talking about. Yes, uh, and that is. I mean, if you could puncture that myth, you'd be doing something very valuable for the world. <laughs> yeah, uh, we we can both work on it. Let, no, let, but I think that's see. It's. I think it's sort of the emperor. It's the emperor has no clothes. Absolutely. It's like the reason this guy, you know, um, it's not that this guy's a bad communicator. It's what this guy has to say 
isn't important, isn't interesting, or, God forbid, isn't right. Or or he doesn't fully understand it. He doesn't, or doesn't understand, even understand it, it himself. He doesn't right. understand it well enough to communicate. I think that's one of the one of the great lessons of uh, uh, of life is that uh, if you understand something, you should be able to communicate. It might be dry, it might be boring, but you should be able to get at least get it across. The people who are who are uh, you know so opaque and so mis- mysterious that you can't figure out what they're saying. I always. Uh, the, the default should be that they don't know what they're talking about. Although Hegel supposedly used to deliberately uh, make his his uh, class lectures confusing and then and go home and laugh at his students because uh, he had deliberately made them uh, meaningless. But uh, I, I slander. And, and look where it got him. I slander my profession. Uh, let's turn to let's turn to symphony, which I think is an incredibly important thing. Uh, it's not, yeah, it's, but by, by symphony I mean um, seeing the big picture. Um, teasing out the meaningful currents from the welter of information out there, uh, and also combining uh, two things into something new. Um, and you know what, what this is in some ways is, is, is an argument, not entirely, but it's a little bit of an argument against pure specialization, particularly in work. Um, if, if you think about, especially the technical fields. Uh, uh, you know anything? Let's say, let's say in college, anything you learn in a technical field um, in in college as a freshman is probably going to become obsolete by the time you're a senior. And so, what matters more is seeing the big picture, learning how to learn, being curious, uh, and, and those kinds of things. And so, there's a fair amount of evidence out there, a little bit of evidence, in, in some of the psychological studies that show that big picture thinking is probably the best predictor of star performance in the workplace. Um, and also, I think that there are many more returns to uh, multiness than there are to uh, pure, deep, momentary specialization. Um, and you see this especially in terms of hiring in, in business. There's a premium on people who are multidisciplinary, multifunctional, multicultural, multilingual, people who can move smoothly across boundaries, um, who can understand how the pieces fit together, who can operate in different realms. And that's, and that's what I mean by symphony. And also, symphony is at the heart of another aspect of symphony, that is taking something from two realms and combining it into something the world didn't know it was missing, is really at the heart of invention. And again, that capacity to constantly invent, come up with something new, uh, there's even there's always been a premium on that, but there's even a higher premium now when people have so many of their particular needs and wants uh, already satisfied and oversatisfied. Well, I agree with you that the that the star is often the the big picture thinker. I think the best leaders in business, whether they're mavericks and or whether they're they're um, in the mainstream, the best thinkers are those who synthesize, those who integrate. But it's a rare skill. Part of the reason those are the stars is that 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 ability is so scarce. So again, I, I wonder about the practicality of it, uh, how much you can personally enhance one, your own ability to do that. And I would suspect that for many people, that deep specialization remains the way to go, although it is riskier now no, than it I, was. I'm not so sure about that. I, I think that it's partly, I think all of these abilities, I think, I think for a lot of these abilities, it's like any other attribute of human condition, is partly in your DNA. Um, but like all these things, there's a range. And so if you think about height, I mean, your DNA is going to tell you pretty much what your height is going to be right when you're born. Um, and your environment and um, is going to determine, you know, at what end of the range it's going to be. But, um you know, there's a relatively narrow band. I think for these, there is a band. If you think about something like empathy, or if you think about something like this symphonic capacity, but I actually think it's a pretty wide band, and you can move people to the upper realm of their band. I think one reason why people are not as good at symphony at seeing how the pieces fit together is that, especially in formal education, they have operated in a world that doesn't help them see the the, the how the pieces fit together. Well, that's they a- march, they march from math class and a bell rings. When a bell rings, and then they march to science class, and a bell rings, and then they march to English class, and the bell rings, and no one ever says these things have anything in common. 
and after sixth grade, they don't march to, or maybe fourth grade, they don't march to art class anymore. Even so, they don't even. That's sure. That's a big part of it, and also they avoid writing. They, you know, as you said in the business schools, they avoid writing. They don't think that writing is anything you do if you're a mathematician or if you're a scientist, and so they don't see how the pieces fit together. One little one little datum that I think is quite interesting from the National Center for Education Statistics is the increasing number. I think it's basically a four x increase over the last twenty years or so in self-designed college majors because the traditional categories, academic categories, don't map the world as well as students want. So they recognize that, let's say they want to go into biology. Well, a lot of biology issues today raise ethical questions. So maybe they want to combine biology and, and philosophy, and maybe they want to do something in bioethics. And so you have this... Um, uh, in, really interesting increase in the number of these boundary-crossing self-designed majors because the, the categories that people are cabinet into don't make that much sense, and people are recognizing that all these things are linked up, that they're not as segmented as we would have them believe. Yeah, well, so I, I think that is, I really do think that that is a big barrier. I think if you're steeped in that kind of environment where no one ever bothers to point out the connections to you, then it's not surprising that after 12 years of formal education, you're not thinking that symphonically. Well, I, I like that point. I think the educational system is um, you know, remarkably uninnovative, uh, partly because it's run like a government monopoly and maybe for other reasons, though. And let me suggest some of those other reasons and, and get, your, get your reaction. We talked earlier about fads in business schools. One of the fads that, that I've watched over the years is, is the appeal of the interdisciplinary approach uh, a lot of schools, business schools, sell to their prospective students that they're interdisciplinary. Mm-hmm. But I know in reality they're not. It's it's kind mm-hmm. of it's a bit of a, of a of a sham and a bit of a fraud. And the reason it's not, the reason those promises are usually not true, although as you say, students have a hunger for it, and often at the undergraduate level are going to do more integrative stuff. It rarely works out at an MBA level because. The professors are not interdisciplinary. They are the result of a highly intense, right. narrow, deep specialization. They're not just accountants. They're one kind of accountant and one kind of thing. And in, at the med school level, you know, in medical school, uh, you know, you don't just have pediatricians. You don't just have pediatric oncologists. You have pediatric oncologists who, who specialize in one type of cancer, which is a wonderful thing. At, at a certain mm-hmm. point, because it allows that extraordinary power of specialization that we've we've left out of the equation in most of our conversation today, and we've talked about it elsewhere uh, in another podcast. But uh, specialization is very powerful. But as you point out, it limits it. Li- it's limiting, and yet the challenge to unleash those limits, to break those limits, is that the people who are doing the instructing are the product of the system that was very narrow, and the people. You know, the ability of the average instructor to cut across, say, accounting, finance, economics, and marketing, or better, yeah. or better accounting, economics, finance, marketing, and aesthetics, or and ethics, and philosophy, mm. those folks are hard to come by. And most yeah. of them who are doing it are, are kind of faking it. What, what you can get sometimes <laughs> what you can get sometimes is team teaching. So you can watch yeah. two people brush up against each other in their, two, in their yeah. specialties. That, that's one way to do it. But I think the biggest challenge of, of this kind of approach is, is the practicality of it. Um, although I, I do think it's, it, you know, it's a glorious thing when you, can, when you can look at something in a new way, when you can bring two things together. Think I, you know, the better way to say this maybe is you know, just the, 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 the cliche of thinking outside the box – uh, most people are in the box. That's just by by definition. That's what's normal. Uh, the ability of people to 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 cut across uh, disciplines and see things in a new way is just it's a scarce skill. Yeah. Although I think that I think that the, the scarcity comes. I really do think that a lot of the scarcity is comes from the context in which people operate, rather than some kind of intrinsic inherent limitation on their abilities. Maybe. Why? Because, what are you thinking? What's your Well, no, what I'm thinking is is that is that if you think about a kid, a little kid, I mean a little kid doesn't see the world cabinet into these categories that that, that 
uh, an adult that, that an adult would. And I really think a lot of it has to do with the way that that, that cabining is inculcated in people in their formal education. Um, um, and I think if a different kind of formal education, uh, people would be seeing more. People would be seeing more broadly. To me, a lot of these abilities, and I mentioned this in the book, a lot of these abilities to me remind me of literacy and numeracy. That is, we tend to think that most people, you know, the vast, vast, vast majority of people can be literate, and the vast, vast majority of people can be numerate. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone who's numerate is going to be a great mathematician, or everyone who's literate is going to be, you know, a Nobelist novelist. But it does mean that people can become literate and numerate and, and, and be able to express themselves in words, be able to read, be able to write effectively. It also means that people will have a grasp of the basic numerical concept, will be able to think in a, you know, with, with, in a numerate way. Uh, and I think it's the same thing with, with symphony and all these other abilities, that is, is that with the proper um, uh, settings, the proper uh, context, the proper environments, and I don't mean I'm avoiding using the word teaching, instruction, training, but in the proper setting, environment, situations, that um, these abilities can become like literacy and numeracy, things that people can master reasonably well. Well, let me agree with you in the following way. I, you know, I think it's a market opportunity for universities, and the way that they meet the market opportunity mm-hmm. now, the way we meet it at George Mason and at other universities, or in the business schools that I've been talking about, is we create these interdisciplinary majors, and that means you can take courses in different areas. So you can move among the boxes, but you don't really – the task of moving across the boxes is sort of left up to you. And occasionally you get what's called a, a capstone course or a, you know, a synthesis course, and yeah, some yeah. of those are good probably. Many of them are not. So I think there's and – I, and I do – to come back to my earlier point – I think the thing that makes that hard to do is, is the instructors. I think it's very hard to find truly interdisciplinary people, but obviously they are at a premium and can provide a lot of value is, what, is really what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, and there are other ways to do it too. I mean, I know that, 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 that my alma mater, Northwestern University, was experimenting or proposing, I don't think they've actually instituted it, um, a, a senior thesis project that involved your doing a collaboration with someone outside of your major. So you would do your senior thesis as a joint project with somebody else, and let's say you were an economics major, and you would do a a joint senior project with someone who, say, was an anthropology major. And you guys would come up with a joint question to answer and pursue it together and pursue it across disciplines. And I think that, you know, that's a fascinating approach. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. The other thing I think you're right about, which I'm not quite sure where this is going to end up, but, you know, when I think about homeschooling, which I've thought Mm -hmm. about, our kids are not homeschooled, but when I think about homeschooling, one of the things you think about is, is the opportunity for interdisciplinary synthesizing um, whole brain kind of education outside the different bell ring, you know, something different than the bell rings you move from oh, yeah. from from class to class, and it'd be interesting to see if homeschooled kids are um, are better at interdisciplinary activity and synthesizing and 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 bringing things together because I think because they're outside this this the box of of the public school system and most private schools or have the same problem. Maybe they maybe they learn some different skills. Um, I think they do. I mean, actually, in my first book, Free Agination, I wrote about homeschooling, and I've written a little bit about it and talked to a, a lot of homeschoolers. And there, there, there's basically two different categories of homeschoolers. There, there are people who are homeschooling often for kind of cultural reasons, and a lot of them end up in some ways recreating the traditional um, academic environment or the traditional academic approach, particularly the approach to categories and subjects. You also have an approach in homeschooling called unschooling that is very much about this, which is about letting the kid follow his or her own interests and move smooth, and not even have these boundaries to move smoothly across. Basically, letting the kid, you know, say, "Hey, I'm really interested in dragons, or I'm really interested in martial arts, or I'm really interested in baseball," and pursuing that and recognizing if you study baseball, for instance. Well, you're going to learn some physics in how the ball moves. You're going to learn some history about where baseball came from and about American history. You're going to learn literature because there are all these great novels and things written about this. 
And and so my hunch would be and you're that, gonna, yeah, you're, they are. You're going to be very numerate also because <laughs> you're going to learn a lot of statistics and That's hypotheses it. and how to test data. Well, i got to tell you, Russ, I mean, the reason I'm numerate is because I was a baseball fan as a kid. I'm absolutely convinced that it had much more to do with being a baseball fan, reading box scores, and playing stratomatic baseball <laughs> than it did with any formal mathematics education I got in school. Well, I don't think there's any doubt that stratomatic baseball is clearly a key predictor of, of economic success in the 21st century, but uh, <laughs> I think we'll want to devote an entire podcast to that uh, another time. But now, but now people don't even do that anymore so much as there are all these other kinds of, you know, these fantasy, I didn't have fantasy leagues when I was a kid. They didn't have these, um, these you read about these simulation leagues? No. Where you basically, you, you draft a team and the computer simulates um, with a set of rules about how you want to manage it, and then in the space of like a week, the computer simulates a series of ge- you know a season's worth of games. It's just stratomatic. It's stratomatic for the twenty first century. Right. It's basically stratomatic on speed yeah. without the without the without the dice and without the, the, the what it, what it lacks is it, it it basically turns the managerial decisions into an algorithm rather than a case by case decision. Yeah, but that's that's very cool. Yeah, it's cool and it's fast. Anyway, I think going back to the substance. Although I, I'd love to talk about baseball, but uh, I, I think it's it's clear that that homeschooling has the potential to um, break down some of the traditional um, paradigms for education, and it'll be interesting to see how that turns out as it as it There occurs. are a lot of lessons in homeschooling for the traditional education system. My kids are not homeschooled either, but there are a lot of lessons in homeschooling um, that. Both public and private schools would do well to heed. Yeah, it's a interesting. Uh, and we still have a lot more to learn about the brain and how we learn and, and how we use the stuff we learn. Um, let, let me challenge you with – we're almost out of time. Let me challenge you with the last question. Mm-hmm. Uh, you talk in the book about going through a, uh, a course and learning how to draw. Mm-hmm. And I worked through that same course. I didn't take it. Uh, on site, but I worked through the uh, exercises in Betty mm-hmm. uh, Edwards' book, mm-hmm. uh, Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain. Is it Betty or Betsy? Betty. Betty. So that's an amazing book. And what I loved about it, which you, which you chronicle in your book in a painful and embarrassing way, I have to say, Dan, is what a horrible artist you were when you started, as, as was I, and that a, a person who is, quote, talent-free, as, as I thought I was, and I think I am, can actually learn how to draw. I can't yeah. learn. I can't learn. I can't take a blank piece of paper and draw a horse. It still looks like a, a six-year-old drawing a horse. Right. But I can look at a horse and I can make a horse after I look at it, and that's yeah. a, and it's deeply gratifying. And it, and for a long time, and maybe a little bit still, it changed the way that I looked at the world around me. And I think that yeah. was a glorious part of being a human being. And I think I joked earlier because I know you talk about it in the book, the fact that we. After you turn a certain age, if you're not good at art, you just they don't let you do it anymore in school. It's considered a quote waste of time, and I think right. that's a tragedy. I think that's a shame. I think it's a part yeah. of being a whole person. But I wonder if it's anything more than that, and that's what I'd like to hear you defend. I think doing that's made me a better father. That art that it's made me a better seer of the world around me. It's enhanced my walks on a at dusk when I see how the light plays off the trees. I love all that. But you're making a much stronger claim in the book that that kind of thing, and you talk about play and meaning, topics we didn't get to, but you claim it is going to make me a more productive person, not just a better, fuller person. Do you want to try to defend that as, as our closing thought? Well, first, let me, let, me, um, um, let me sort of take issue with the divide that's implicit in the question. Um, I actually think that that being a happier, more fulfilled, more insightful person makes you a more productive person. Um, that that having a sense of who you are, what your place is in the world, how the world operates, actually makes you more productive uh, in and of itself. For me, though, that course was valuable not so much in my ability to draw, but as you were saying, Russ, in in, in my ability to see. I see the world differently after taking that drawing course. Example, I didn't know what a negative space was. Now I see negative spaces everywhere. Um, you know, I think noticing light and shadow is effective in widening one's eye to how the world operates and how the world and how the pieces fit together. I think it enhances one's 
design sensibility. I think it gives you a better sense of proportions and relationships in the world. And that ha- now, is there a direct payout? That is, you know, if you take a drawing course, will your the, 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 you know, what is going to be the increase in the present value of your lifetime income? I don't know if you can make that kind of connection. But I think inevitably that being able to see, being able to understand how the pieces fit together, um, being able to see what's not there uh, enhances your ability to come up with new ideas, enhances your ability to combine ideas into something new, enhances your ability to, uh, in this case metaphorically, see the big picture, uh, makes you a fuller human being, and, and therefore makes you productive. I mean, although I, I'll grant you that in some, I'll grant you that you can't necessarily prove a direct causal relationship between taking an art class and boosting one's earnings. But I think it's actually a pretty reasonable uh, leap of faith for a lot of people that if they, if they enhance those kinds of abilities, um, they're going to be have a better life. But I also think they're they're going to have a life that's better off as well. Well, I like that, and I. I think you probably make the same point about calculus. Taking calculus is probably a good idea. I encourage my children to do it. I think it's part of being yeah. a full human being. And it probably makes you uh, more productive, although in most cases it certainly be hard to measure. Uh, sure. I mean, because you know, it gives you it's, – it's a form of thinking. I mean, it's a way, it's a way of it's, – it's, it's a way of thinking, it's, and it's, a way, it's, a, it's another way to understand the world. And the more of these – you know, arrows of understanding you have in your quiver, the more you're going to be able to understand the world, the more you're going to be able to see it in a, in a different way. And so, again, that's, that's why, you know, mathematical thinking, um, uh, literary thinking, design thinking, aesthetic thinking, engineering thinking, all these different approaches are valuable. And if you can master them in some degree, uh, it's really, I think, a case where one plus one plus one is well more than three. My guest today has been Dan Pink, contributing editor at Wired and author of A Whole New Mind. Dan, thanks for being part of the conversation at EconTalk. Thanks for having me. It's been a delight. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.